John chapter 16, please. John chapter 16. Good to see you all here today. And let's engage with God's Word. Let the Spirit of God have rule in the heart this morning. Okay? Amen? All right, John chapter 16. Look at verse 16. And then we'll read down through the end of this chapter. Beginning in verse 16, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father, They said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing." Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day ye shall ask in my name. And I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. His disciples said unto him, Lo, now speakest thou plainly, and speakest no proverb. Now we are sure that thou knowest all things, and needest not that any man should ask thee. By this we believe that thou camest forth from God. Jesus answered them, Do ye now believe? Behold, the hour cometh, yea, and now is come, or is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, in context again, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is about to happen, for what is about to come. And what is about to come is that Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas. Jesus is going to be arrested. Jesus is going to be tried illegally. He's going to be beaten and whipped and scourged. And eventually Jesus is going to go to the cross and be crucified. All of this is just about to happen, just hours away. 
some of it in the very probably next moments, these things are going to happen. Jesus is going to die. He's going to be put in a grave. It's all going to cause so much sorrow in their heart. They're going to experience even personal failure. Peter's going to deny the Lord moments from now, hours from now. All the rest of the disciples are going to scatter. They're going to leave the Lord. These are things, very real things that are about to happen that Jesus is preparing His disciples for. And Jesus says, this is going to cause you sorrow. But He gives them some help and He gives them some encouragement because in verse 33, He says, I've spoken unto you these things that in Me you might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So we're going to look at this passage. We'll not get through every last verse in this passage this week. <clears throat> and we'll, we'll finish it up as the Lord allows. But there are definitely some principles and thoughts here uh, that are a great challenge uh, to you and to me. And I want us to look and break these verses down and unpack them a little bit and make some application and ask the Lord to bless His Word and the Spirit of God to make application as He sees fit in hearts today. So let's pray and then we'll ask the Lord uh, to help us and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we do ask for Your presence or Your Spirit uh, to give full control. And Father, I yield myself to You. And Lord, I pray that each one would do the same. And Lord, that Your Spirit would have free course to work in hearts today, but also that You would control the words that are said. And Father, may Christ be exalted in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to draw your attention to is in verses 16 to 18, where the disciples are really perplexed. In verse 16, Jesus says, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father. Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father, they said, therefore, what is this that he saith a little while? We cannot tell what he saith. And here we find that the disciples are pretty perplexed. They were what we might call a bit spiritually ignorant here because they didn't understand the spiritual significance of what Jesus is saying. They didn't even really understand the physical significance of what he is talking about. And so they're confused in their mind and they're, they're perplexed and they didn't understand what all of this meant. But the Lord was going to show them exactly what this meant. And we start with that this, this morning because I want to make an application here regarding this ignorance, this spiritual ignorance, because... Mankind, in general, is spiritually ignorant. In general, when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to understanding spiritual truth, mankind in general is spiritually ignorant. And the Bible calls it being blind. Or the Bible calls it having our understanding darkened. And you might say, okay, pastor, what is it that mankind is in general ignorant of? First of all, we could say that mankind is ignorant of what his true condition is. Mankind thinks of himself in a certain light, in a certain way, according to his own understanding. And mankind is in general ignorant of his spiritual condition before God. Mankind views himself as good and right, but in, in reality, the Bible tells us that we are wretched 
and sinful and not good. Let's look at a few passages of Scripture. Psalm 53. Go to Psalm 53 with me. In Psalm 53 and verse 1, the Bible says, The fool hath said in his heart, There is no God. And then he gives a description of mankind. Corrupt are they, and have done abominable iniquity. There is none that doeth good. God looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand, that did seek God. And here's what God sees. Every one of them is gone back. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Do you see the contrast in, in, in relation to how, how people view themselves and how God views people? The fool hath said in his heart, there's no God. And then the description is, actually, mankind is corrupt. Mankind is full of iniquity, and God is looking to see if there's any that seek after God, and they're all gone backward. The Bible says there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Isaiah chapter 64, in verse 6, the Bible says this, But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquity, like the wind, have taken us away. You ask mankind in general what they think of themselves, and their description is not going to be what the Bible says. Mankind in general is not going to say we're all an unclean thing. Or if they do, they say, well, we justify ourselves because we're all the same. Mankind in general is going to think he's pretty good. He wants to think that way. But look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. The Bible says, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. Here's a perfect description of how generally mankind's going to view himself. What did the Jews think of themselves? Well, they thought that they were right with God because they could keep the law and they did the, this and they did that and they did all of these things and therefore all of my righteous efforts gives me merit and favor with God. But you Gentiles, I thank God I'm not like one of them. And Paul says, Paul says here, what then? Are we better than they? In other words, are you better than Gentiles? And Paul proves earlier that in, in chapter 2 of Romans that the things that you condemn them for doing, you do the same thing. And you're just as guilty. So are we better than they? No. In no wise. For we have both or before proved by our own life, both Jews and Gentiles, that we are all under sin. Here it is, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. That word unprofitable means to render useless. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. In fact, their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing 
and bitterness. You know, I wonder how many, I wonder how many people who profess Christ, who claim to be Christian, who put on a show when they're at church, but in their regular life, in the work where when no one's around and something bad happens, what comes out of their mouth? It's full of cursing and bitterness. No one heard. Ah, blankety blank, ah, la, 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 la. Oh, but I'm a Christian. I wonder. I wonder if we knew. God knows. God sees. God hears. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. Mankind is ignorant of his true condition. And the truth is, our sin has separated us from God, and it condemns us. Someone might say, why is that such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because mankind is also ignorant of God's wrath. Mankind is ignorant of the wrath of God. In Romans chapter 2, go right back there since we're here. And I mentioned this already, but in verse 1, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. Boy, there's a lot of judges out there, aren't there? Even people who sit in pews, they're really judgy. Nitpicking, criticizing, uh, looking up and down and and finding fault. Paul says, "You're, you're a hypocrite. And you're not, an excuse, you're not excused from your own, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. Not according to your standard, but according to God's truth. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. Wow, that's pretty powerful. Paul says that you think you're right in your own eyes, but that's not according to God's standard. And in reality, what you're doing is, is heaping up your, upon yourself. And that's what that you treasure up on yourself, wrath against the day of wrath. It means piling it up one after another. The judgment of God. Mankind is ignorant of the wrath of God. In Revelation chapter 21, the Bible talks about the fearful and unbelieving, and idolaters, and abominable, and, and those who do every evil work. The Bible says that, that, that the second death is the lake of fire, the fire which burns with brimstone. Mankind is ignorant of the wrath of God. Just recently I heard a pastor friend tell this story about a family friend. The guy was 52 years old, not an old man. He had health issues, and he had for some time. 
And his health issues were such that it created a lot of misery in his life. And these issues kept him from living a full life even. And he was in the hospital and out of the hospital. And he was in the hospital and, and he ended up signing a, a do not resuscitate order because he's, he was tired of this. And if this happens to me again, he's like, he said, pull the plug. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm miserable in my life. And his statement was, and his thought was, he was ready to die. It was miserable for him, and he was ready to die. And he says, don't pull, pull the plug. Do not do this again. And he says, I'm ready. I'm ready. But here's the problem. He wasn't saved. He didn't know the Lord as his Savior. And the preacher was telling the story about how this guy says, I'm miserable and I'm ready to die. And he says, no, you're not ready. Because you don't understand what you're walking into. You think this is miserable? You have no idea the misery that's coming next. And people think, I'm just going to end it all. I'm ready to die. I'll just go out into eternity. Oh, friend, you are not ready to die if you do not know Jesus Christ is your Savior. You are very ignorant of the wrath of God. Another thing that mankind is ignorant of is that he's ignorant of the brevity of life and how quickly eternity is coming. James chapter 4, go over there with me. James chapter 4. Whether you think you're ready or not, mankind is very ignorant of the brevity of life and how quickly eternity is coming. James 4.14 says, Whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. The life that you and I live is like a, a puff of smoke. It's like breath on a cold day. You see the vapor and then it's gone. Just like that. Eternity is coming. One way or another. And the, and the point that I'm making here is that mankind is ignorant of the fact that we don't have a promise of tomorrow. You can't put off spiritual things. You can't put off the truth of God thinking that you've got tomorrow because, friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not ready for eternity. The disciples were perplexed. They didn't understand the spiritual realities that Jesus was talking about. They said, what is this that, he, that He's saying to us that in a little while and you're not going to see me and then a little while and you're going to see me again and what does this mean? They were spiritually ignorant, but Jesus was going to show them what He was meaning. And we look down in the next verses, if you go back to John chapter 16, you look at verse 19. down through verse 22, and the Bible says here, Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask Him. 
And said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves of that I said a little while, and ye shall not see me? And again, a little while, and ye shall see me? Verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into this world. And ye now, therefore, have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Here in these verses, we find that Jesus tells his disciples that joy is going to come out of your sorrow. That joy is going to come from your sorrow. And the Bible tells us that Jesus knew the disciples didn't really understand. And he knew that they wanted to ask him, what are you talking about? In verse 20, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice and ye shall be sorrowful but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. He says the moment is soon coming when you're going to be really sorrowful. They already were. They already were having a hard time with all that Jesus had told them. And and the Bible earlier says, in these chapters earlier, says that, that there was sorrow in their hearts, and Jesus understood that. But he says the moment is coming when you're going to be very sorrowful, and the world is going to rejoice in that. But later... When you understand and you see me again, all that sorrow is going to be turned into joy and you're going to forget all about the pain. And then he uses an illustration in verse 21 of a woman who's in travail, a woman who's about to give birth. And when her hour is come, there's sorrow and there's pain. But the moment that she holds her baby in her arms, the moment that it's over, all of the pain is forgotten and there's joy. What is Jesus talking about here? When he says to the disciples, you're going to sorrow, but the world's going to rejoice. He's talking about the crucifixion that is about to happen. He says, you're going to be sorrowing, and the world is going to be rejoicing, thinking that they won. You're going to weep. But the moment is also going to come when you won't weep anymore because you'll understand and you'll see me and you'll know the truth and you'll understand the joy that's going to come out of the sorrow. Let me say to you this morning, there's real reason for rejoicing. Jesus said the world is going to rejoice thinking that they won. But in reality, there is reason for rejoicing in the crucifixion. As horrible as Jesus' death was, all of mankind should actually rejoice. Why? Because on that day when Jesus Christ shed His blood on that horrible cross, what happened was the payment for sin was made. And it reminds me of what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14. He said, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what Paul said is, I don't want to glory in anything at all except the cross of Christ. That word glory that Paul talks about in Galatians 6, it means to boast. It means to, to, to joy in. It means to rejoice over. 
You mean Paul is saying that he wants to rejoice over and take joy in something so gruesome and so horrible as the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? That's what he's saying. Why? Why would he take joy in something so gruesome? Because something far greater than physical cruelties happened that day. What happened that day that Jesus was crucified? Why would Jesus say that you're going to sorrow over this, but you're going to understand later, and you're going to be rejoicing? What happened there? What really happened there was when Jesus was crucified is that the Son of God became a sacrifice for sin. That's what happened there. Go back to Isaiah 53. We looked at this passage a little bit ago, but let me point out a couple of verses to you. Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53 and verse 3, the Bible says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from Him. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That day that Jesus was crucified, the Son of God became a sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice to pay for sin. Not for His own sin, but for the sin of the whole world. Jesus knew no sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 1 John 3, 5, And ye know that He was manifested to take away our sin, and in Him is no sin. And what I'm saying is that Jesus Christ was the spotless Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. And John said in, earlier in the, in the Gospel of John, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. What does that mean? It means all who ever lived and all who ever will live, that all of our sin was focused and laid on one person, the Son of God. Jesus became sin for us, and it pleased the Father to bruise Him. Listen, I rejoice in the fact that He took my place. I rejoice in the fact that He took the wrath that I deserved, that He's a sacrifice. And Paul says, I don't want to glory in anything except for the cross of Christ. Why? Because He became a sacrifice for me. And if I accept that and believe on Christ and repent of my sin, you know what? I am ready to go out into eternity. Not only that, but we know that Beyond Him becoming a sacrifice, we know that the righteous demands of a holy God were met. There's reason to rejoice. Every sin 
which sin is the breaking of the law of God. You do it every day. You do it multiple times in a day. You probably do it many times in an hour. Every transgression receives of just recompense of reward. Why? Because God is holy and God is just. And God does not forget. And the record books are always clear. And every time a transgression happens, there's a record of it and a mark of it. And every sin that you've ever committed is going to be judged. Oh, you, this is why mankind is ignorant of the wrath of God. No idea how much wrath is being heaped up upon ourselves the moment we step out into eternity. God is holy and God is just, and every transgression receives a just recompense of reward. And Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4 says that all souls are mine. The soul of the Father, the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God would not be just if even one sin went unpunished. We want God to overlook our sin. Sit through preaching service. Say, oh, that's a good point. That applies to so-and-so. Oh, that was a really good point that was just made by the pastor. Wow, that ought to convict so-and-so. And all the while, we don't look into our own heart and see our own life and our own sin. We want God to overlook ours. Or we'll project our own view of sin onto God. Like, oh, what they did was really bad. I might have told a little lie. I might have had a little gossip. I might have done something like that. But what is that compared to what they did? We project our view of sin on God. But God is holy. And God is just. There must be a payment for every sin, yours and mine. Sin demands a punishment. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. What we earn for our transgression is death. And I'm saying to you this this morning, in those hours of darkness, as Jesus hung on the cross, and He's preparing His disciples for what is coming, But in those hours of darkness, as Jesus hung on the cross, the wrath of God on your sin and mine was being poured out on Jesus Christ. And the Bible says in Isaiah 53 and verse 10, look at verse 10 right there, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He, the Bible says here, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath brought him to grief. He'll make his soul an offering for sin. You look at verse 11, and verse 11 says, He shall see the travail of his soul. and shall be what? Satisfied. He he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The righteous demands of God were met. And the death that you and I deserve for our sin, Jesus took on himself. If you look at verse 10 again of Isaiah 53... 
you see that how it pleased the Lord to bruise him. How could it be that God would be pleased to bruise his own son? How could it be that it would give pleasure to the Lord, to God himself, to bruise his own son? The answer is because of God's great love for sinners. Those who hate him, those who are unprofitable, who've been rendered useless. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus went to the cross knowing that he was going to take the sin of the world on his shoulders knowing that the wrath of God was going to be poured out on him, knowing that he would become sin for us. And in John chapter 19 and verse 30, in the last moment, as Jesus is about to die, he says, it is finished. Matthew tells us that Jesus cried with a loud voice, it is finished. What is he saying? He's saying the work of redemption is done. The work of redemption is done. The payment for sin has been made. And there's nothing left to do. It's finished. Look in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. In verse 12, Hebrews 10, 12 says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Verse 14, For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. You know Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Our salvation is the grace of God. Grace means unmerited favor. We don't deserve it because the only thing we deserve is wrath. Not of yourselves. No works, no righteousness, no religion, no personal effort. Jesus paid it all. There's a song that we we sing sometimes in our hymnal. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but Jesus washed it white as snow. Listen, the way of salvation and sins forgiven is repentance toward God and faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. It's paid for. Jesus paid the full price for every man's sin. The righteous demands of a holy God were met because Jesus was a sacrifice for sin. Jesus tells His disciples, you're going to be sorrowing over what's coming. But eventually that sorrow is going to turn into joy. Paul said, I, will, I don't want to glory in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. I rejoice in the cross of Jesus Christ. Why? Because my, my sin is paid for with Jesus Christ. It reminds me of another song that we sing called, I Will Glory in the Cross. The, the words are, I boast not of works, or tell of good deeds, for not have I done to merit His grace. There's nothing I've done to merit His grace. 
All glory and praise shall rest upon him who willingly died in my place. And the chorus is, I will glory in the cross, in the cross, lest his suffering all be in vain. And I will weep no more for the cross that he bore. I will glory in the cross. Why? Because the payment for my sin was made. I was studying. Actually, I was thinking. And I suppose that you could say that that's still studying. On my drive home. And this song came on. It's called Before the Throne of God Above. I was listening through the words of that song and I got to the second verse. And the words were this. It just, it just smote me. It was, it was good. It was, it, was, it was precious. And I had to just rejoice in the Lord. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. You ever felt that? I feel terrible. I feel rotten. I'm a horrible person. And Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. God the just is satisfied to look on His Son and pardon me for all of my sin. There's a reason to rejoice in the cross. Jesus tells His disciples, you're going to be sorrowing. You're sorrowing now. It's going to get worse. But you and the rest of the world who believes on Me is going to have great joy because the payment for sin is going to be made. Amen? Now, it goes beyond that too. Because today we have sorrow, today we have suffering. But when Christ returns, it's going to turn to joy. Amen? Christ gives the kind of joy that the world cannot possibly take away. And Jesus says, no man can take it from you. So Jesus gives them some encouragement. And Jesus says that there's going to be joy that comes from your sorrow And he's preparing his disciples for all that's about to take place. And then you get to verse 23. Go back to our text in verse 23. And in that day, ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time cometh when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. 
At that day you shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because ye have loved me, and have believed that I came out from God. I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world. Again, I leave the world, and go to the Father. Jesus tells his disciples here that their relationship is a personal relationship with God the Father. Now, you notice, we're not going to take the time to break all this down because we're going to talk more about this in another time. But he says, in that day, in verse 23, and in that day ye shall ask me nothing. It probably refers to the day when the Spirit would come and begin His ministry among them. If you recall, a good portion of John chapter 16 is about the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God in the world and also in the life of a believer. And so it's kind of a continuation of that. And Jesus says in that day when the Spirit of God is, is, is ministering among you, He says, In that day you shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, He will give it you. And notice how he says in verse 24, Hitherto, or up to this point, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. And the explanation for that is, while Jesus was on the earth, and He personally ministered. The disciples were accustomed to taking their questions and their needs to Him personally. But when Jesus would return to heaven, He would send the Holy Spirit of God to assist them and also instruct them on how to pray to the Father personally. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 26, the Bible says, The Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. God, who searches all the hearts of men, knows the mind of the Spirit, and the Spirit helps our infirmities. When we don't know what we should pray for, the Spirit makes intercession for us. The coming new day would give the disciples direct, personal, intimate access to the Father because of what Jesus Christ was going to do. And now, friend, the Word of God tells us because of Jesus Christ, the way of access is open to God and we can come boldly before the throne to find grace and help in time of need. The Word of God tells us in 1 John that when we pray according to His will, praying to God, we know that God hears us and we know that we have the petitions we desire of Him. Jesus would no longer need to pray on their behalf. Jesus says, I'm not going to... In that day, he says in verse 26, "Ye shall ask in my name, and I say not unto you that I will pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loveth you, because you've loved me and have believed that I came out from God. Jesus would no longer need to pray on their behalf. They could ask for themselves, right, to God himself. 
Now, that truth doesn't negate the promise of Christ's intercessory work, certainly for us. But the disciples, the point is, is that the disciples were on a personal love and faith relationship with the Father. And here's the principle or the truth. Only children have the privilege of access to the Father. What a great thought and a great comforting truth that I'm a child of God and only children have access to the Father. And Jesus says, you're on a personal, intimate, love, faith relationship with God Himself. What a glorious and comforting truth that you and I have access to God through Jesus Christ because we are children too. Now think about that. Like the times when you're struggling and the times when you're hurting. Just to be able to take it to the Lord and to just lay it all out and tell Him all about it. Have you ever found those times in your life? Sometimes I feel like I'm whining or complaining but I'm just telling the Lord all about the problems. Sometimes I'm telling Him about you. <laughs> all the problems. I'm just saying, what I'm saying is, you just lay out your burdens and your cares, and all of a sudden you can sense His presence right there to start to work peace in your heart. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? Do you know what that means? Or is that something that, mm, not relatable, not sure what he's talking about. That's a reality of sonship. That's a reality of real salvation. Are you His child? This was a time of adversity, certainly, for the disciples. It was a time of sorrow for them. But Jesus says, you can overcome that. In fact, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And we're going to consider that next time, Jesus' words. But today, how has the Lord spoken to your heart? Are you His child? Do you know Him personally, intimately? Are you ready to go out into eternity? Mankind's very ignorant of a lot of things, but Jesus said, I'm going to show you, I'm going to tell you. I think the Word of God shows us and tells us even today, what we need to hear and know. God is speaking to your heart. You need to respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, use your word to accomplish your will, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.